you have a Bible with you this morning, be looking at John chapter, mostly 3, 1 through 8, but I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 23 and following to begin. So hear the word of God. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning again that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray uh, that you would give new birth even this morning. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you're here for the first time, we are, I don't want to say we're in the middle of a series on the book of John, but we're beginning. Uh, we've gone through the first two chapters or so, and today's where things really start to take off. Today's where Jesus um, begins to interact with people, and he will do so throughout the rest of the gospel. And of course, today's a very famous passage, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, where Jesus interacts with this man named Nicodemus, and he talks about this terminology about being born again, right? And I, I remember when I became a Christian and my godmother heard and I told her, I said, I've been born again. And she's, she, she almost fainted. And she said, oh, Patty, he's become a holy roller, right? <laughs> she was from New York. So what, what does it mean? So we're going to talk about that today. So the, I mean, the big question that needs to be answered this morning for the text is what must happen for a person to be able to enter the kingdom of God? Something has to happen to a person for them to be able to enter the kingdom of God. You know, Charles Spurgeon, many of you know, is one of my favorite preachers. He preached back in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. And he told this story. It's sort of a thought experiment. And it's not particularly politically correct because remember back in the 1830s, uh, American Indians, or we would call Native Americans or First Nations, were all the rage in Europe because, right, they, people were interacting with them in the United States. And so he wanted to, to find someone that would be the most unlikely for this story. And so he told this story and he asked the question. He said, imagine that an, an American Indian went to the, to the palace, the Buckingham Palace, and said, I want to see the king. And the only criteria for seeing the king is you have to have been born in England. If you're not born in England... You can't see the king. No, no exceptions at all. And so imagine this, this American Indian comes and says, I would like to see the king. And they say, were you born in England? No. Then the answer is no. And he said, okay, how about if I change my name from Running Bear to John Smith? That's a good English name. Can I see the king now? Were you born in England? No. 
No. How about if I dress like an Englishman? Can I see the king then? Were you born here? No. Then the answer is no. How about if I talk like an Englishman? No. How about if I act like an Englishman? I'll be all stuffy, right? No. If you weren't born here, you don't get to see the king. The only thing that gives you the privilege of seeing the king to being in his presence is birth in the land of of England. And the point of that story is just this, because when you begin to think about it in terms of the gospel, that you learn the same thing about the kingdom of God. In in other words, you 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 could call yourself a Christian, you could dress like a Christian, you could talk like a Christian, you could act like a Christian, but unless you have been born from above into the kingdom of God, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. In other words, you could do all of these things that look very Christian-y, and that still doesn't mean much. It still doesn't mean that you have entered the kingdom of God. It still doesn't mean that you are right with God and have a relationship with God. And so unless you've been born again, you cannot enter. You cannot even see it, but you can't enter the kingdom of God. So to that end, we're going to look at three things this morning that Jesus makes very clear. Um, the first thing is the depravity of humanity. Right? Why, why do you need to be born of God in the first place? Well, the depravity of humanity is where we're going to start. And then we're going to look at the futility of ability and then the agency of grace. Okay, So the depravity of humanity, the futility of ability, and the agency of grace. Let's talk first about the depravity of of humanity. So if you if you remember the context of this, Jesus has cleansed the temple in chapter two, and as a result, and they said, give us a sign, and he said, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then after that, John records chapters two, verse twenty-three through twenty-five. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, So people are believing in Jesus, and it very specifically says they were believing, believing in him because of the signs he did. In other words, they were impressed, and they thought, wow, this guy's cool, I'm going to believe in him. But they weren't changed, they, and they believed in him, and they didn't become disciples necessarily. They just thought, wow, this guy's important. Or, wow, he really can do some amazing things. And it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. It literally says Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't believe them. And the point is, is it says that he knew what was in man. And he knew, he himself knew what was in man, and he knew all people. In other words, there's something fundamentally broken about people that, that would lead Jesus to not entrust himself to them. And it says he knows what's in them, and he knows all people. Now, what's interesting is, is that's really a statement of, of depravity. It's a statement of you, these people are not trustworthy. And what I always thought was interesting is when you read commentators, a lot of them say this is a clear evidence of Jesus' divinity, that he knew what was in all people and that he knew what was in man. That might be true. But another way Jesus could have known what was in man is by reading his Bible, (laughs) right? Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus knew the Bible very well. And just by reading the Bible, Jesus could have known what was in humanity's heart or what was broken about humanity, right? So if you think of Jeremiah 17, 9, it's a passage I actually use at weddings to remind couples that it's going to be hard. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, this says that the heart is desperately sick and beyond cure, 
who can understand it? Or Genesis 6, 5, right? That, that's just prior to God destroying the earth with a flood. It says, every thought of man's heart was only evil continuously. That every human, human being was completely, they weren't necessarily as evil as they could be. They weren't all doing the bad things that they could be, but it was in them. Right? Tim Keller has a, has a great phrase. He says, you and I are not Stalin or Hitler, but it's not for lack of talent. Right? It's in there. So, so Jesus, he could have known what was in man just by reading his Bible. Right? Psalm 51.5 says, I was sinful from the moment I was conceived. So Jesus could have known what was in man just by reading his Bible, or he could have served like one Sunday in a church nursery. Right? I, I remember being in college and people and being in religion classes and people arguing, children learn evil from adults. And, and I would always say, you've never served in a nursery. Those kids figure out evil all on their own. Why? Because it's just in there. Right? The, the, by nature and by choice, it's in there. He, Jesus could, so Jesus could have known that by serving in a nursery. He could have known it by reading a newspaper or watching te- te- television news. They didn't have that. But imagine Jesus was alive today and he, he opened up his news feed. What would he see? Russia invading Ukraine, politicians lying about a pandemic, you name it, and there were just corruption and depravity no matter how you slice it, no matter where you look. It it doesn't take a lot of work to realize that what is in man is not good all the time. That humanity is broken, right? If you remember, you go all the way back to, to Genesis when God created everything and everything was exactly the way it's supposed to be, that is called shalom. The word shalom literally means the way things are supposed to be. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they violated that. And from that moment on, things were no longer the way they were supposed to be. Does that mean there's no good in the world? Of course there's good in the world. Of course there's good in each person on one hand. On the other hand, there's also brokenness and depravity. I mean, think of anything. Think, you know, like I I remember back in the day when I was a church planner, you'd talk to, to a feminist and I would say, are things the way they're supposed to be? You know, and she'd say, absolutely not. That's why I'm a feminist. Right? If you talk to, a, to a, a white Republican male, are things the way they're supposed to be? Absolutely not. That's why I'm voting for Reagan. I mean, in, in other words, we, our whole lives are actually uh, constructed around trying to cope with all the depravity around us and all the depravity in us. So the, the depravity of humanity is a significant problem. That by nature and by choice, we're sep- sinful, broken, separated from God. And all the goodness and achievement in the world can't change that. Right? I mean, if you, you know, like I, of course, spend time on TikTok every day, flipping through there. And, you know, you have a lot of people on there who are just, they talk about, here's what I do to be a good person. You might be good relative to other people, but are you really that good? Not really. What's interesting is what John does next. He, he makes this sort of statement about the depravity of humanity. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men. And you'd say, well, there's got to be some good people. And then John almost, almost anticipates that. And he should, gives us a picture of the very best person that the ancient Near East could have ever produced. When you look at chap, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, in 25, it says, no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then verse 3 in our English version, it says, now. In Greek, that literally says, for example. So Jesus knew what was in all men, 
For example, Nicodemus. Let's talk about the very best person that Israel could have offered up. In, in other words, it's like, God, we think being good is good enough. Here, let's put Nicodemus up. And let's see how that works out. And why do I say Nicodemus was, was the exemplar? Now, basically, this considered Nicodemus's pedigree. In verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So consider his pedigree. Number one, um, he's religious. And not only is he religious, he's a master of religion. He has mastered, as a Pharisee, he has mastered the Old Testament law. He has probably memorized it. He's a guardian of Jewish orthodoxy. And you're going to see as we go through the book of John, the Pharisees are const- you know, sort of the foils for Jesus oftentimes. But for a long time, the Pharisees were considered to be the good guys in Israel. Right? When Israel went into exile, the Pharisees were the ones who held everything together. When you hear about the, the synagogues, the Pharisees were the ones who organized those. The Pharisees were the ones that maintained uh, God's word. The Pharisees were the, were the good guys. So Nicodemus was a good guy. And so he was religious. He was a master of the Old Testament. All these things. So he had mastered religion. He was also, of course, educated. Right? So his education, his name was Greek, and a lot of people point out the fact that he was Jewish, but he had a Greek name, means his family was probably pretty cosmopolitan. He was probably multilingual. And remember, toward the end of chapter 3, Jesus calls him not a teacher in Israel. He says, Nicodemus, you are the teacher in Israel. Like you're, you're, you're like a tenured professor in Israel. You're like the man. When it comes to education and educational accomplishments, there was no one who had done more than Nicodemus. So he, he had mastered religion. He had mastered education. And finally, he had mastered politics. Notice it says that he was a ruler of the Jews. What, did, what would it mean for him to be a ruler of the Jews? Well, it would have meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jews. But to be called a ruler of the Jews... For, for our purposes, it would have been like being a member of the Supreme Court, right? That Jerusalem was for the capital, and if you, you wanted to be, you're there at the temple, and you're a member of the council, and if you're a ruler, that functionally meant for what in our purposes would be like a member of the Supreme Court, that you were, you were very, you were extremely powerful, because people would come to you with, with asking you for interpretations of certain laws and this and that, and what you said was, generally speaking, authoritative. And it, it could be very political, as you imagine. And so he, he had mastered religion, he had mastered education, he had mastered politics. And so when Nicodemus, it says, now a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we, we can only speculate why this man came to Jesus at night. The, the best interpretation, or, the, or the, the nicest one, is that he cared about Jesus. In other words, he thought this young rabbi, he's... he's privy to all the discussions about how we need to get rid of this guy and he goes to jesus at night and he's he's going to say hey man you need to be careful these people are going to hurt you right he and he opens up by admitting what everyone knows not just him he's not saying i know you are from god did you notice he said we know you are from god he's talking about the rest of the pharisees and the rest of the sadducees we know you're a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs that you do unless god 
as with him. So on one hand, he might be going to try and warn him because he's like, hey, one way or the other, we're going to have to deal with you. One way or the other, we're going to have to either submit to you and admit that you come from God publicly, or we're going to have to get rid of you one way or the other. Or he was coming to Jesus at night because he wanted to find out more, and he didn't want the other Pharisees to see him, and he was embarrassed, and he was trying to stay on the down low. But either way, he tells Jesus, we all know that you're from God. And we we all know that that you couldn't do the signs that you do unless God is, is with you. Now, I don't know what he expected to hear, if he expected Jesus to say, why, thank you for that compliment. Thank you for the encouragement. I've been doing all these signs. I was hoping someone noticed. And since you're the teacher of Israel, thank you for coming to me. And the fact that you, the teacher of Israel, would call me a teacher, that I can't tell you what that does for me. What Jesus does instead, Nicodemus calls him a teacher out of respect. And implicit here, Jesus says to him, you know what, you, you called me a teacher, but right now I'm going to talk to you as a prophet. In other words, right now, listen to me with your prophet ear. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus opens up with this formulation that no one uses but him. And it's, in, in Greek, it's amen, amen. And in a synagogue, a rabbi would say amen, and then he would look for people to affirm it. He, we do it in churches today, right? Amen? Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus doesn't need your approval. Jesus simply says, amen, amen. In other words, what I'm getting ready to say to you is literally the gospel truth. Amen, amen. And he says to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, all of your, your religious achievements are not good enough, Nicodemus. I don't know what you came here looking for, but if, if, it, if you're trying to figure out how to get into the kingdom of God, your religious achievements, your educational achievements, your political achievements, they're all futile. Right? All of your abilities, all the gifts you have, they're, they're just futile to, to try and get into the kingdom of God through your good works or anything. All your goodness, all your nationalism, all your patriotism, all your liberalism, all your conservatism, none of that is good enough. You see, being in right relationship with God is not about what you do for Him, but about what He does for you. And that's shocking to a lot of people. People argue about that. I can remember being in college, I can remember being in seminary, and people just getting in fights about that. Whether or not we are reliant upon the grace of God even to see the kingdom of heaven or whether everything is up to us and everything's about our choice and everything is about what we do. Now, is what we do important? Absolutely. But it's what we do in response to grace, not what we do in order to achieve or to, to, to get grace. And so after a lifetime of achievement, imagine uh, for whatever reason Nicodemus came and Jesus, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, unless you're born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That would be jarring to someone who spent his whole life trying to earn the kingdom of God. Someone who spent his whole life mastering religion. Someone who spent his whole life mastering goodness, mastering being a, quote, good person. And that's because Nicodemus doesn't understand the agency of grace, our last point. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? and enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting is Jesus gets prophetic again. I didn't notice until this week. I've preached this passage over the years before. I didn't notice Jesus uses that formulation, truly, truly, or amen, amen, three times with Nicodemus. If I was Nicodemus, I would be getting a little nervous. Right? So Nicodemus, probably, he's, he's probably being dismissive. You know, how can someone enter again into to his mother's womb? And Jesus comes back at him, truly, truly, I say to you. He says, truly, tr- truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is, is alluding to something here that Nicodemus should have known. In fact, verses, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't, you don't understand these things? Why should Nicodemus understand what Jesus is saying? And the answer is because the whole Old Testament is full of what Jesus is saying. That the whole Old Testament is all about God's work on the behalf of Israel and on behalf of his people. And probably the most obvious one is in Ezekiel chapter 36. 37 is the valley of dry bones. And in chapter 36 is where what I use for the call to worship today Notice it says, God says to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. In other words, basically, we preach rightly that we need to with Jesus and we preach that we need to be saved from our sins and in order to do so we must put our faith in Jesus we have to believe that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died and that he's taken our sins upon him and that he has given us his righteousness but before we do any of that something else must happen in fact before we do any of that something does happen what happens is that the Holy Spirit must give us eyes to see and must take our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. You see, what Jesus has done here is he's not only subverted, he, he not, by saying you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, he, he not only subverts everything Nicodemus thought about entering the kingdom of God, that you don't get in because of your goodness or because of your achievements, but he actually subverts, I think, everything we think about entering the kingdom of God. And in fact, he subverts everything we often think about what it means to be born again. Right? If you ask the average person in the average church what it means to be born again, you'd say, man, if I want to be born again, I need to trust Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, if you want to trust me, you need to be born again. That's, those are slightly different, but they're actually the complete opposite. You don't trust Jesus to be born again. You are born again, and then you trust Jesus. You trust Jesus because you have been born again, because God has done some work in your heart that you had, you had no control over. You weren't the one. You didn't make it happen. Like, I remember when people, I love telling people that, like, I'm a pastor, and I say, you know, I never decided for Jesus. 
Never. What happened? I remember when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. My family didn't go to church at all. I'd been dating the same girl for two years. We had even talked about getting married. And all of a sudden, things started like working in my heart. I remember getting my class ring, and I was, I was ordering a class ring. And I looked down, and I asked the guy that I was doing the order from, I said, hey, can you put a cross in that? And he said, sure. I said, he said, are you religious? But never been to church. He said, why do you want a cross? I said, I don't know. I remember fishing through, around that same time, I was moving some things for my mom, and I came across an old Bible, like an old King James Bible. I'll never forget, I flipped it over, and it said, greater love has no man than to give his life for his friends. And I joined the army, and I thought, that's cool, that, that's not bad. And then some girls invited me to camp, and the first night at camp, the guy said, you are completely depraved and sinful, and God is going to punish you for your sins. Have a nice night, kids. And I went outside, and someone said, so what would you think of the talk? And I said, I think I'm screwed, frankly. And he said, what do you mean? I said, because I, if that's true, I didn't know. And over the course of about an hour, I asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins. In other words, I didn't decide for Jesus. What I learned was that Jesus had decided for me. And since Jesus has decided for me, I had the opportunity to embrace him back. And the question was, would I embrace him back or not embrace him back? But I certainly couldn't do anything. He had already done it, and he was already doing it. He had been working in my heart up to that moment. Think of your own testimony. Is your own testimony one of just like, man, I was like, really the smartest person in the world and then I decided like I should check out Christianity and I read all the relevant texts and I thought this is rational so I'll do it I don't know anyone like that and there are nuclear physicists there are rocket scientists there are doctors there are people who are brilliant who believe in Jesus and most of them don't say yeah I just read all the you know I did the math and it worked out Something worked in their heart, and that is how it works. The Holy Spirit must work in your heart. The Holy Spirit must work in you. And when we hear him call, we, we embrace him back. Now, you're sitting here going, well, if God does all the work, I can't do anything. Is there anything I can do? And the answer is, yeah. Here's what you can do. You can be like Josie Grossi. Have you seen the movie Never Been Kissed? If you haven't, it's been out for a while, so forgive me the spoiler. Josie, Drew Barrymore, I think it's one of Drew Barrymore's best movies. She basically, the movie opens and Drew Barrymore plays this really sort of nerdy, awkward high school student. I mean, really nerdy, really awkward. And she gets out of high school, she becomes a reporter, and her editor asks her to go back to high school undercover, because she still looks young, to write a story about the high school. And she goes back as an adult, and she thinks it's going to be really easy going back to high school as, as an adult with all of her now wisdom and knowledge. And she finds out that it's not particularly easy. And she eventually figures it out, though, and she is very beautiful. And she eventually not only becomes the prom queen, but she also falls in love with her English teacher. Now, he doesn't know that she's not a high school student, so he's all hands off. And at some point, she reveals to him, like, ta-da, I'm actually an adult. I'm not jailbait. You can, you, you know, we can be boyfriend and girlfriend and look at all these great things I've done. And he rejects her. He rejects her because she, he, she's a liar. And he misled her. And she's just heartbroken. And it is heartbreaking. It'll, it'll make you cry. Well, I don't say make you cry. It makes me cry. What is she going to do now? 
She writes, so she writes a story about the high school, and in it, she apologizes to the teacher and says, here's what I'm going to do. The state championship baseball game is this weekend. After the game, I'm going to go stand at, on the pitcher's mound for five minutes. I'm a grown adult woman. I've never been kissed. And I'm going to stand out there and give you the opportunity of giving me my first kiss. After five minutes, I'm not going to do it. And so she does it. She goes and she waits on the pitcher's mound. And time's ticking down, and the crowd is getting antsy because the whole crowd is waiting. And five minutes comes and goes, and he doesn't come. Heartbreaking. But then he does come. At the last minute, right when you think it's all over, he does come. And he goes running to her. And he grabs her at the pitching mound, and he embraces her, and he kisses her. And you know what she does back? The only thing, what else could she do? She embraces him back. She responds to him. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to become a Christian. You don't know what to do. Go to the pitcher's mound and tell Jesus, Jesus, I'm, I'm here. If you're real, embrace me. If you're real, come and show me who you are. If you're real, let me know. And when you feel his embrace, what you do is you simply embrace back. Now you want to know something else that's cool? You wouldn't even go to the pitcher's mound if he wasn't already at work. You can't escape grace. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would um, open our eyes where they need to be, to be opened and that you would give us, that maybe those of us who have been Christians for years, for decades, uh, give us a new appreciation of the fact that the reason we are even here is because of your initiative, not because of ours, because of your goodness, not because of ours. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen.